Welcome to HealthCast. I'm your host, Adam Patterson. Today we're joined by Eli Kaufman. Eli is one of the founders of the Department of Veterans Affairs Mobile Orthotic and Prosthetic Services, or Mobile Ops, care program at the VA's Puget Sound Medical Center in Washington State. Eli combined a background in medical design and prosthetics care to create a pilot program for much more customized in-home prosthetics fitting. While still in its earliest stages, the Mobile Ops program has proven a success for veterans with particularly challenging mobility concerns, whether due to distance from a VA care facility or the nature of their injury. Eli has found this has allowed for much better patient outcomes and has also discussed how similar programs across the VA are emerging to provide in-home prosthetics care throughout the United States. Eli, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me here, Adam. To just start off with an overview for our listeners, can you tell us a bit about your background and your role at the VA? Well, I am a prosthetist orthotist, meaning that I make prosthetic limbs for individuals that have experienced limb loss, as well as all sorts of supportive devices, specialty for people who have neuromuscular skeletal impairments. I currently work primarily in the research area doing uh, research around prosthetic intervention and device development, and we uh, share our work broadly in the scientific community. Yeah, I can imagine also that particular background is especially highly valued at the VHA itself. Absolutely. The VHA puts out uh, perhaps more uh, research around mobility and prosthetics than any other organization in the country, and it's a great place to be doing this work. Yeah, I can absolutely imagine. Which kind of brings me to my next question, which was, what was the original motivation for starting VA's mobile ops program? Well, let me share with you the origin story of the program we call Mobile Orthotics and Prosthetic Services, or Mobile Ops. And this was back in about 2016 when I was uh, working in our clinic. And other clinicians and myself, we made an observation that we had in our back shelves and in the back lab that we had prosthetic limbs that were sitting there months and months on end uh, where patients weren't coming in. Their plans of care were stalling out. And so we talked to some of the patients, we talked with providers, and what we found is that uh, patients were having some significant challenges just coming into our medical center to receive the care that had been prescribed to them. And we know that uh, even if we look at the literature, there's uneven access to care that takes place along a variety of factors. and. My colleagues and I, we uh, decided we wanted to try to take some action. Uh, we posited that and hypothesized that if we could reduce or eliminate the burden of travel and nothing else, that we could probably make a dent and move the needle in terms of the care, the access to care that our veterans were being prescribed. So, you know, one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Beth Ripley, who's doing awesome stuff in the uh, area of 3D printing within the VA. At that time, she was embedded in the VHA innovation ecosystem in our region. And so she encouraged us to develop this idea and pitch it to the Innovators Network, which is you know, one of the programs in the innovation ecosystem. So that was in 2018 that we uh, pitched it. And at the beginning of 2019, we were selected as an INET or Innovators Network program and uh, received funding for two years to pilot this in Puget Sound. And since that time, I've also taken on a role as a fellow with the innovation ecosystem, which has provided additional support to be able to develop our program. And in some ways, it's a little ironic, we think, that um, we got our start through the innovation ecosystem because this program, in a way, is, is so simple and it really harkens back 
to a care model that's so many decades old in this idea of going to people's home to provide care. It's not really slick in the way we do healthcare these days. But in truth, I think the innovation ecosystem recognized how radical this idea was, and they appreciated that we were able to leverage new technologies to do this work more efficiently. So we could use telehealth, so we could bring entire rehab teams into our visit with patients, but also we could conduct some of our visits via telehealth entirely. So in visits where being in person might add a little value, like some aspects of uh, initial evaluation or follow-up, or there's some little problem-solving thing that really doesn't require that we were in a room together, we can address some of these things via telehealth. We've also streamlined our toolkit. We're doing most of our work out of a small to mid-sized vehicle using a portable tool set, battery-powered tools, 3D scanning and printing are coming on board. And eventually, we want to move toward integrating health monitoring apps and really be a platform on which to test and deploy emerging tech in an agile fashion within the VA in this prosthetics and orthotics sphere. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like it's really a pivotal integration within the VA's both health modernization, but also the focus on remote care, because I can only imagine this has been especially valuable and in need in more rural areas and sort of expanding that sphere of care as well. Yes, absolutely. And it's not just in rural areas. Rurality, we know, is certainly one factor affecting access to care in prosthetic and orthotic care in particular. But what we found is that most of our rural patients have had other factors involved in, in the formation of barriers to coming into our medical centers to receive that prosthetic and orthotic care. So like we're looking at mental health, PTSD, unemployment, substance misuse, housing instability, certainly transportation challenges and the lack of public transportation options that can get you from a rural environment all the way into the city where we have our, you know, where we offer our services. And we know that all of our patients have mobility impairments that even in many instances just make walking across, you know, from the parking lot across our giant medical center campus into the clinic is a challenge in itself. Or sitting in the car, you know, for the two or three hours it might take to drive here can cause back pain that, you know, most folks don't have to deal with normally. And so a lot of these barriers do apply in urban and suburban settings as well, but of course they're exacerbated in rural settings. We know from the literature that other factors do have a compounding effect, particularly in rural environments. So we know that say race or gender and sexual identity, income can all affect access to care. And these factors are compounded in rural settings, rural communities. And of course, rural communities generally, this is a generalization of course, but they have fewer community-based clinics that can be utilized to kind of close the gap on access to care. So yeah, these are all very important features of you know, the challenges that come into play when uh, providing care to our rural patients. That makes a lot of sense. And it also makes a lot of sense that it's for both outcomes and patient satisfaction, it's best to go to the veteran's home if they have challenges with mobility, I can imagine. Certainly, yeah. I mean, there really are innumerable benefits to providing prosthetic care in this fashion. For one, we can greatly reduce the risk for COVID. We know that when a patient comes into our medical center, there's all the steps that they take along the way, whether that, if that happens to involve using public transportation. But even once they get here, they're going to interface with far more people than they would compared to if a single clinician goes to their residence. And so some of the patients that we've seen since the onset of COVID, we've seen at their homes in their driveway. We can be outside. We can do it on their patio with everybody observing precautions with masks and all the stuff that we need to do 
but we can really reduce our risk for COVID exposure. In one instance, we had a patient that was living in an assisted living facility. It was one of the only facilities in the area that was still open because so many other facilities had had COVID outbreaks and had to shut down. So this place was really, really on lockdown, so much to the point where their policy was if any of their patients left their facility, even for a single appointment at the VA, when they come back, they would have to quarantine for two weeks just to be sure that they didn't you know, bring COVID back into the facility with them. And at that point, they may even lose their bed if they did quarantine and you know, their bed might be reallocated during that time. So we were able to bring a clinician, see that patient just in the lobby of the facility, which they were fine with, and the patient never had to you know, be isolated for two weeks and risk losing his place in the facility altogether. So in instances like that, it's, you know, it's really a no-brainer. But we can also, in so many other settings, in just normal times, to see patients, say, in their homes is fantastic because we can get this incredible clinical insight that we just can't replicate in a clinical environment. And, and I have some examples that I like to cite. One is a patient that we worked with who has an amputation above the knee and, and lives way out in the, in the sticks, in the woods, and you know his driveway is steep and gravel, and he has to walk up and down the, this very, very long driveway just to pick up his mail each morning. And so we have a microprocessor knee that he's using, and we could fine-tune the settings of the knee while we watch him walk up and down his own steep gravel driveway, which, again, you know, we can't do that in a clinic. We just, we can't replicate it. So, you know, his knee now we know is tuned perfectly for the environment that he lives in. So I believe that actually we can, in so many instances, provide enhanced care compared to what we're able to do in the clinic. Yeah, it really does provide you with a unique and vital level of insight and context, I can imagine, because prosthetic care is so obviously has to be detailed to the particular needs of the patient. It's so clearly not a one-size-all-fits sort of thing, which brings me to my next question, which is in terms of the mobile ops program and the reach, approximately how many veterans so far have received prosthetics care through mobile ops at this point? So our program has been small. We haven't had anyone dedicated to working on this full-time to this point. And so our actual number of patients is, I think, fewer than 20, but the model is, has been one of making sure that we are seeing some of our most complex patients. So, for example, one of our patients, I believe, took 11 visits for us to get the fit of his prosthesis correct, because for those working in prosthetics, one thing that we know is that the fit of the prosthesis is really, really probably the most critical piece of how well that prosthesis is going to work for the individual. So it really, really is worth, and it's just necessary to take the time to get it just right. Sometimes, you know, we can do that quite easily. Others for a variety of medical and physiological and, you know, just the shape of the limb, all sorts of reasons, it just can be much more difficult to achieve that. So we're really looking at our, the, the highest complexity patients. Now, for, is what's interesting is that if we look at this patient that took 11 visits, that we did that over in the neighborhood of six months, so six months to deliver a new prosthetic limb. If we look back in his chart at the history, we see that when he was coming to us in our medical center, that it took over four years for him to log the same number of visits. And actually, he never got through the plan of care, even in all that time. And so he'd been using a malfunctioning prosthesis for all that time. And that just speaks to the challenges of which this particular patient has numerous challenges in coming into our clinic. So even though on one hand, it seems like, whoa, six months, 11 visits, what's taking so long? You know, 
when we look at all our alternative, you know, it, I see this as a huge success and one that we could build off of and probably really still improve our efficiency as we get better and better at this and learn from what we've done and, and what others are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the, again, it sounds like the mobile ops program is still more in its inception phase, but in terms of the geographic reach, how much has the mobile ops program expanded since the inception at the VA's Puget Sound Medical Center? So the mobile ops at this point remains a pilot program. And so we really have looked at the Seattle catchment area. This actually is quite far. When we started, we just to really focus on the lessons that we could learn and, or what are the challenges of providing care through this model, we focused on folks that were in the city so we could, in fact, we were collaborating with our homeless primary care teams so that we could quickly get out and see uh, a higher number of patients and largely found what, that they were patients that, with some very notable exceptions, they were largely coming into our clinic without too much trouble. And then so from there, we kind of expanded our reach to being able to get all the way out to the Washington coast or to central Washington, it's about three hours away. I don't know that we have felt like going as far as three hours is really the sweet spot. I mean, that's quite a haul. That means that that's six hours of total travel time for a clinician, which at best, you know, you could maybe see one or two patients in a day. So we're, we're still examining what is the right distance, what's the right model. But it's interesting to note that We've also learned that we're not the only ones in the VA doing this type of work. Visit 10, that's Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan, has had a program for quite a number of years. Theirs is a little bit different from ours. They're kind of a, a higher number of patients that they're seeing, but working on a generally lower complexity of patient. And they've been working on that for a number of years already um, and have several vans and dedicated clinicians. And out in the Pacific Islands, it's Visit 21. We have uh, prosthetists over there that their territory is probably the largest of all the U.S. They're going to Guam and American Samoa. And then for those patients, they're flying, you know, what is it, 10 hours in an airplane? They're flying to these other islands, seeing patients in a single visit, often taking impressions of a, a residual limb and bringing that impression back to their medical center and then making a return trip to do a delivery which you know is fabulous that they're seeing patients from so far away. So I think there's a lot of opportunity, people that are innovating on this already and maybe an opportunity to kind of standardize our methods across the VA. The truth is that the needle around the organizational and cultural acceptance of this care model is steadily moving and we're just one part of that. And I'd love to see it happening. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. And I actually didn't know that there were sort of similar programs, especially in the Pacific Islands of all places. You know, that is, a, as you mentioned, it's no small trip to go from, you know, from American Micronesia to Guam. You know, I can imagine that's a, not exactly a small leap. And to kind of wrap this all up and piggybacking off that last topic you just brought up, what plans do you have or does the VA seem to have for mobile ops or mobile prosthetics care more broadly going forward? So Adam, there's over two and a half million rural and highly rural veterans enrolled in VA, and a significant portion of them have at least one service-connected condition, earn less than $35,000 a year, and don't have access to the internet at home. So we're talking about a sizable population of older adults with lower incomes and reduced access to resources. Now, this subset of rural patients tends to be medically complex and is more likely to have a diagnosis of diabetes, which is the primary cause of amputation among veterans. But there are also many thousands of younger veterans with multiple medical and combat-related issues living in rural communities. Nearly half a million rural veterans served in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
And of course, rurality is really only one of numerous reasons why veterans may face challenges traveling to VA medical centers for care. So we're currently working on establishing the extent of the need, building a sound model for growth and sustainment, raising awareness in the VA and in the community, and working closely with our stakeholders at all levels of the enterprise. Ultimately, our team aims to develop and widely expand a sustainable program, which along with all of the VA's other treatment options, can help ensure access to VA clinical prosthetic and orthotic care for all veterans requiring these services. Yeah, and a really admirable goal too, and a very needed one. Eli, this was great. I just wanna thank you for coming onto the program. And it's of course, always an honor to have folks in the VHA and hear about their experiences. So again, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Adam, I really enjoyed it. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris, Adam Patterson, and Faith Bryan. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.